You can open your Bible to Genesis chapter 48. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are at the front here walking towards the back, and we would love to put a Bible into your hand so you can just slip it up in the air. We'll make sure it gets across to you. And if you don't own a Bible, um, this is our gift to you today. Take it, keep it, read it, and we trust you'll be blessed by it. We are focusing our attention um, on this idea of blessings. You'll notice the title of the message. Hopefully, it comes across loud and clear. The blessed blesser's blessing. This passage of scripture is all about the blessing of God. And I hope just that topic itself is an encouragement to you because we need to be reminded that our God is a God of blessings. Our God loves to bless people. And so we need to understand what the word of God says about that. And I want to really put this into some perspective for you based on the text that we're going to look at. And I want to begin by asking a really simple question. And here it is. What concerns should fill your mind when you should come to die? What would you want to say if God so enabled you and allowed you to have this experience What would you want to say that moment where you were about to pass from this life into the next, what would you want to say and communicate to those that you love? To your family, to your children. And this isn't some trivial question that I'm posing for you. I think that this is a question that the Bible wants us to repeatedly ask ourselves The book of Ecclesiastes itself wants us to shape our lives by the understanding of not of the beginning or the middle of our lives, but from the very end of our life. We're supposed to be living life backwards, in a sense, through the perspective that one day this life is all going to come to an end. And I want you to think of it like this. A deathbed perspective is incredibly important because it shapes our lifelong priorities. A deathbed perspective shapes our lifelong priorities. In other words, thinking about our death helps us better know how to live now. And here in this passage, Jacob, the patriarch, whose name is transformed to the name Israel as he represents a nation that is coming from him, This man, Jacob, is about to die. This idea of death actually frames this passage and helps draw out this this picture of blessing that we're going to look at. In fact, look in chapter 47 for just a moment at verse 29. We saw this last week, but I think this helps us kind of bracket the passage appropriately. It says this, and when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph. And then flip over to chapter 49, and I want you to look there at verse 28, excuse me, 29. And these verses are bracketing our passage. Here's what he says. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Hittite. 
And so the question we need to, to look at here today is, what does Jacob think about when he comes to die? And what Jacob thinks about here is God's blessings. How he personally was blessed by God, how he should then be a blessing to others on behalf of God, and specifically, what exactly those blessings would end up being as he says his final words to his own children. And I want to say to you today that there is nothing better in life than the blessing of God. In fact, blessing in the book of Genesis is actually associated with life. It is the essence of life. It is the meaning of life. It is the purpose of life. In other words, God creates humanity to experience the blessing of his presence, the fullness of life, for in his presence there is, the psalmist says, fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is what humanity first experienced in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. And it's where God is intending to bring humanity all throughout the book of Genesis and God brings us there all the way to the very end of the Bible itself. And life and blessing in God is really the opposite of, of the curse, the curse of death that so quickly invaded human existence. At the end of your life, I promise you this, there is only one thing that will matter, and it is this. What did I do with the blessing of God? So that's the question I want to help guide us through this passage, to use to help guide us through the passage. What do we do with the blessing, with God's blessing? And there are three things we should do the first is this, we need to know God's blessing to you. In chapter 48, we pick up where we left off last week, and it says this, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. 
Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim who was the younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Here, as Jacob is about to die, He is thinking about his family and he's thinking about their future, but he's also thinking about God's promised blessing to him. The thing that is on the forefront of his mind is the God of all blessing. The blessing that God had had given to Abraham and to his father Isaac and then now passed on here to Jacob who is getting ready to pass that very same blessing on to his sons. And so he gets Joseph and and Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he pulls them in and he wants to bless them. And it's interesting here, the text tells us that that these two sons um, who are half Egyptian and half Hebrew are actually, in a sense, becoming like the two firstborn sons, Simeon and Reuben. In fact, 1 Chronicles chapter 5 tells us that they're actually replacing these sons, And so there's a kind of adoption ceremony that's taking place in this moment as they are being included in a significant way into the promises of God and into the plan of redemption. And really, again, the the blessing that they are receiving is the blessing that Jacob himself has received from God, passed down from his father's. 
Jacob knows that he has been the recipient of God's eternal life-giving blessing. Even as he lies on his deathbed, what he is being reminded of is the life that he has actually found in God himself. And as he does this, I'm sure he's thinking back across his life. We saw last week in the previous chapter when Jacob stands before Pharaoh and he explains in summary his life, he says, few have been the days of his sojourning, few and evil have been the days. It's been a hard life, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of trials, a lot of pain, a lot of his own personal sin has got in the way of so much of his life. So much of his life he actually spent resisting God, rebelling against God, fighting God, trying to do things his own way, even trying foolishly to accomplish God's plan of redemption in his own strength and power, with his own wisdom and ingenuity. And though his faith has often wavered, and his faithfulness has often failed. What he is reminded of as he recounts the works of God in his own life is that his God has never failed him not once. That his God has always been faithful. His God has never forsaken him. And as he clings to his final breaths, he is actually clinging to the God who has been clinging on to him his whole life. And this truth is is really important, especially when you think of the, the context in which it was written, maybe the context in which it was first received. We, come, we constantly come back to this because I think sometimes we read scripture and we forget that there's a context in which it was written. There were real people living at a real time in a real place who received this for the very first time. Can you think about that for a moment? And what was handed to them had direct significance and impact for their life. It was absolutely relevant for how they were thinking about themselves, how they were thinking about their future, how they were thinking about God, how they were going to end up living their lives. And the people who first received this here was that Exodus generation. They had been wandering in the wilderness. They had seen God deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And now they're on the cusp of the promised land. Again, they can see it. They can taste the fruit of the land. They can smell it. It's so palpable. It's right in front of their eyes. And this right here, what they're reading and being reminded of, is a powerful reminder to God's people that God always keeps his promises. Even when it seems there is no way he can keep his promises, God keeps his promises. Why? Because God's promises are anchored in God's character. God only speaks the truth. He cannot lie. Whatever he says, he does. And I want us to see here that this is not just about knowing about the blessing. It's not merely about giving intellectual assent to the objective truth that God had passed on to him, it's far more than that. It's far more profound than that and far deeper than that. This is about knowing the God who blesses in the most intimate kind of way. 
when the Bible uses the word know, think about the first time this is used, it's used in the context of Adam knowing his wife Eve in the most intimate kind of human way. And when the Christian, listen, when we are called to know God, the implication is that there is a sense of intimacy, a profound intimacy that we are supposed to experience when we come face to face with God, when we encounter the living God, the God of blessings and the God of all life. And I think we get a taste of that here in verses 15 and 16. Look at how, how Jacob describes God, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. They walked before this God. They they walked in his presence. They knew this God. Look what he says next. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Listen, if you highlight your Bible, and if you don't, you need to. So do it right now. Just highlight that. Underline that. Because that is one of the most beautiful, precious, powerful statements in all of the Bible. The God who has been my shepherd, listen to this, all my life long to this day. Think about the life of Jacob. He has never failed me. He's always been there. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. You remember when when he wrestled with God, when the angel of the Lord showed up and he wrestled all night with God and he refused to let go until the Lord blessed him? He's recounting all these, these moments in his life and he's, He's seeing them flash on the screen of his mind. He's just remembering all the ways God met him. God taught him. God led him. God protected him. God provided for him every step of the way. When Jacob speaks of God, it is personal. It is intimate. He doesn't just know about God. He knows God. And that makes all the difference in the world for him and for you. It's, it's, you know, like, like singing songs. Maybe you come here. It's like, here's the difference. Like singing songs about God versus singing songs to God. It's like a prayer life that you, you just say a bunch of things to God versus actually talking with God. And, and this is the hard truth that I think we don't often like. This kind of depth of intimacy is often forged through a life filled with trials. It doesn't come easily. It comes when God meets you in those moments of sin. It comes in, in those moments of rebellion when, when God lavishes his grace upon you. It comes in those moments of pain and difficulty And what we're reading about here is a man who has encountered God, a man who has shepherded him all the days of his life. And that language is so, isn't it ironic that, that, that the, the Egyptians, to the, to the Egyptians, shepherds were an abomination, and yet the very God of Israel is depicted as the great shepherd. I just, I want that imagery just to sit with you for just a moment, that there is a God who is the shepherd of his sheep. 
The word of God says that we are the sheep of his pasture, his people. God is the shepherd. This is why this language, it demonstrates a kind of intimacy that, that I think we read about in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is one of the most precious psalms in all of the Bible. And you know, the, the older I get, the more I, I live, the more I go through an experience in life, the more and more I just, I love Psalm 23 with all my heart. I cannot tell you the amount of times I come back to Psalm 23 over and over and over again. It is widely regarded as one of the most precious passages of scripture in all the Bible. Why? Because it's not simply about what is objectively known about God. When you read it, it's like you're reading about your experience with God. It's been said that much of the Bible speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. And Psalm 23, it's this powerful picture of how God loves his people and leads his, his people in a kind of depth of intimacy. It's so profoundly beautiful. And I, I want you to hear today that God doesn't want you to merely have a distant understanding of who he is and what he's promised to you. He doesn't want you just to have a, a kind of abstract concept of, of his blessing in your life. God wants you to have an intimate experience with him of who he is, who he has promised to be to you, to you. In fact, let me just ask you, you bow your heads for a moment. And just close your eyes. I don't know where you're at in life right now. I don't know what you've been going through, the kind of trials, the difficulties. I don't know where your relationship is at with God. But I just want you to just let the words of this psalm settle on your heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me, listen to the pathway. Look at the progression. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why? Listen, listen. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Blessing. You anoint my head with oil, blessing. My cup overflows, blessing upon blessing. Surely, listen, listen, surely, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's blessing to you is that he is with you. You can open your eyes. He, 
His blessing to you, if you're in Christ today, is that he is with you, and one day, one day, you will be with him. And here, there's this sense of an overflow out of the life of Jacob that I just, I, I, want, I want to highlight for you that I just, I, I hope you see as so important for your own life today that God is calling you into a deeper kind of relationship with him. Drawing near to him, recognizing who he is to you, recounting all his wonderful deeds in your life, recounting the reality that he has never let you go, he is faithful to his promises. And so he pulls these two boys close, and, and you'll notice that Joseph positions them in the proper place, the older uh, in his, towards his right hand, because that's the, the hand of authority. And in the ancient culture, that was, that was appropriate, it was right. The oldest son is supposed to get the, the priority of the blessing, the primary blessing, and the younger son towards his left hand. But here, Jacob does something fascinating. He sees this unfold, and he does this. He crosses his hands on purpose, and he places the right hand on the younger son's head and the left hand on the older son's head, and he proceeds forward with this blessing, and Joseph is freaking out. He doesn't understand what's going on. And so he's saying to his father, Father, no, 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 you don't understand what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. This, is, this one's the older one, this one's the younger one. You got it all mixed up. And his answer is so, so simple, so pointed, yet so profound. I know, my son, I know. And I want you to think about the last time something like this happened because it was in Jacob's very life where his father's eyesight, like him in this picture here, was beginning to fade, and where he, the deceiver, entered into the presence of his father, pretending to be his brother, in order to steal the blessings that were not supposed to go to him according to cultural norms and standards. And in that moment, he deceptively and sinfully took from his brother what he wasn't supposed to take, what he should have waited patiently for the Lord to give to him. But what we see happening here is that Jacob is very aware of who he was and what God has done to make him a new man. Before, he was acting against God, even though God used it. Here, he's acting with God. He's advancing the purposes of God. And he understands the way that God often works. You say, what's the significance? Same thing all the way back in his life when this happened. What God is communicating constantly throughout the scriptures is that he doesn't operate in accordance to man's standards. He doesn't do things man's way. Why? Because he doesn't want man to get the credit. He doesn't want any confusion about who's doing what, who's in control, who has the authority, who has the power, and who's bringing about the plan of redemption. He wants it very clear. This is of me, and so in order to convey that, I will flip cultural conventions on their head. I will do things in a way that seems foolish to the world, that seems inappropriate, that seems unjust. God's grace is sovereign. 
His grace does not depend upon man, but upon him who has mercy. And and the response from us, you say, why is this significant for us? Because this is the way God does this. Paul alludes to this idea in 1 Corinthians where he says, there's not many wise among you. There's not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. God has chosen the weak things of the world. God has chosen the things that are not so that he can bring to nothing the things that think they're something. And then at the end of the day, it really... Paul draws from Jeremiah 9, 23. You say, why does God do this for us? Here's the response. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. That's what grace is supposed to produce in God's people. Not look at me, look what I've done, but look at God and look at what he has done. He is the God of all blessings. How do you know that you know God's blessing to you? How do you know that you have grasped this in your heart? The simple answer is that you are a person who worships God from the inside out. In fact, the New Testament gives us some quick insight. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, I'll put it on the screen. Here's what it says about this passage. Amazing. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, look at this, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That's a fascinating connection. He views this blessing, recounting these blessings and passing on these blessings as a kind of worship unto God. That's how we know that he knows God because he has become a man who lives to worship God. He bends over his staff. I want you to just have this imagery in your mind. It's, it's like he's no longer leaning on his own strength. He's no longer leaning on his own wisdom. He's no longer leaning on his own power. He's leaning completely on the Lord. And loved ones, listen, that is what it means to worship. That is the disposition of worship. God, I am nothing, you are everything. I must decrease, you must increase, right? That's the whole objective in our worship of God. God, you are everything and you are worthy of it all. This is because to know God's blessing to you is to know God. It is the goal of life. This is what Paul says in Philippians 3.10. This is 15 years into his Christian life. You know what he says? He says, the goal of my life, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. In other words, that I may know the blessings of life, the life that's found in him. Do you know God's blessing to you? If so, here's the question, what do you do now with God's blessing? And that's what we see here. Secondly, advance God's blessing through you. We've already seen Jacob, the blessed, become the blesser to Joseph's two sons. And all of those blessings are really passing on the blessings of the land, seed, and and, and the blessing that was originally given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. But now he wants the blessing to extend to his other sons. These blessings, by the way, that we're going to quickly read in a moment, they're, they're future-oriented, and they're in many ways kind of like a, a prophetic oracle 
They're, they're describing what will happen not just to the individual sons, but what's going to happen to their tribes even as they enter into the land of promise more than 400 years after this moment. And the, the, the structure of the passage actually gives us a, a sense of how we're supposed to understand what's going on here. You see, the sons are not actually in their original birth order. It does start that way with the oldest, but it, it quickly shifts, and there's ones that are out of order. It's actually more ordered uh, in relationship to the, the wives, and there's a, a kind of parallelism that's going on. But the point of all of this is to center on two individuals, So the blessings are for all of them, but there are two individuals that are being highlighted and almost separated from the rest. And those two sons, it should come as no surprise to you, are Joseph and Judah. In fact, the the 10 sons, they get 15 verses combined, and the two sons get 10 verses. Again, the amount of ink kind of spilled on the paper for these two sons is significant in revealing to us the focus of this passage. So to honor the literary structure, here's what we're going to do. We're gonna look quickly at the 10 sons and we're gonna save the two, Joseph and Judah, for the next point, the final point. And so we're just gonna look at these quickly and then bring together a few thoughts from this. There's a couple things I wanna zero in on. So notice that he, then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. That's reaching back to Genesis 35. You remember when Reuben sought to exercise his power and his authority and to really replace his father in the the kind of patriarchal family unit. And he sleeps with one of his father's wives, First Chronicles 5 verse 1 says that he defiled his father's couch and the birthright is then given to Joseph's sons. We've seen that. Notice verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. You remember Genesis 34? When their sister was raped in, in Shechem and, and they go on this tear and they commit mass violence and genocide of this clan. They, they wipe out all the men in rage and in vengeance. Verse six, let my soul, look at this, let my soul come not into their counsel. Wow. Oh my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That's exactly, by the way, what happened to the tribe of Levi. They were given no permanent inheritance in the land as the priestly tribe. They were scattered amongst the tribes. Skip over a Judah there, and go to verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey. How would you like your father to call you that? Crouching between the sheepfolds. 
He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. He's speaking to this idea of them becoming servants in forced labor is speaking to what will happen to them in the future. When they get into the land, they will actually become subservient to some of the Canaanite tribes in the land. And here's the reason why, because of their disobedience and sin. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Interesting that Samson, the greatest known judge in the book of Judges, comes out of the tribe of Dan. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. You don't want to mess with him. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. He wins master chef. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Skip 22 through 26 and look at 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoils. Benjamin will be known as a kind of warrior tribe. The first king of Israel, Saul, will come from the tribe of Benjamin and he will actually be a vicious enemy of the greater king, David. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them. Listen to this language in light of what you just heard. As he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. I want to just highlight two things that I think are very applicable to us. The first is in relation to Jacob himself. The second is in relation to the brothers. First, just note this, that those who are blessed have a responsibility to bless. We can pull this from the previous chapter as well, but I think it extends nicely into this chapter as he continues to see his responsibility to bless his sons. And again, keep in mind the character that we're talking about. Jacob, at the beginning of his life, was trying to steal the blessing of God. Here at the end of his life, he's trying to advance God's blessing through him. It's a different man. And he wants his sons to be a part of the blessing. He wants them to receive what Ephraim and Manasseh have. He, he wants them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He wants them to get into the land. And he wants that land to be a beachhead whereby Israel faithfully follows God and becomes a light to the nations, advancing the glory of God from Israel across the entire earth like the waters cover the sea so the glory of the Lord is supposed to cover the earth. He wants them to be used by God. I think that's really important to understand. He does want them to be used by God, to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so at the end of his life, here's what we need to pay attention to. He's saying to them the very things that need to be said to them. That's really important. He's not just giving them well wishes hoping that everything's going to go fine. He's seizing the opportunity because he sees his responsibility to say the hard things that need to be said to these boys. You're like, well, he could have said it before he died. Yeah, I agree. 
I agree. In fact, isn't that one of the flaws that we see throughout Jacob's life? Jacob, in one sense, appears to be an awful father. Except if you're Joseph and Benjamin, I guess. He plays favorites with his sons. He never deals with the sins of his sons. He lets them run rampant. He waits, he delays. He's kind of like King David, you know, when, when David doesn't deal properly with his sons after the rape of his daughter by one of his sons and, and he allows Absalom to take vengeance into his own hands and ends up doing great destruction to the kingdom of David for the rest of his life. It, it is a failure of the father to lead when he's supposed to. to not discipline his sons, and in a sense, to hand them over to death. And he is saying here some very, very hard things. In fact, he is rebuking them where they need to be rebuked. He is addressing their sins and exposing them, bringing them back into the light. He is dealing with their rebellion, and he is describing what they will be. And yet... What did they do not have to be if they choose to serve the Lord? Much of this should have been said, arguably, long before the deathbed of Jacob. But I think we should take the point that he's saying it now. Better late than never. And there's a lesson here that we can learn from this as we we apply it to our lives, and it's pretty simple. Listen, sometimes in order to bless others, we actually need to say hard things to them. We must actually see this as part of our, our responsibility as followers of Christ. In fact, we see this from Jesus Christ himself. It's really interesting. If you read the Sermon on the Mount... In Matthews chapter five through seven, it begins with the Beatitudes, which in many ways are a description of the, the life of a follower of Christ, a kingdom citizen. And the first three really begin by confronting the sinfulness of people. I mean, listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He, he is talking about realizing your spiritual poverty, coming face to face with your sin, realizing that you're unable to save yourself through your own wisdom, your own power, your own designs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's talking about people who come face to face with their sin, and instead of excusing it or justifying it or trying to sweep it under the rug, they're people who actually are broken because they realize that they're living in rebellion to God, and they fall on their face, and they weep, they mourn, and they wail because they know that God alone can save them, and God must save them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There is a linguistic connection here. The word earth is the word land. And what he's saying is this is nobody, nobody can come into the land. Nobody can come into the kingdom of God. Nobody can come into the presence of God unless you first come face to face with your sin, unless you mourn over your sin, unless you come with meekness and humility saying, God, I can do nothing. You must do everything. And here, this is just a powerful reminder that we must learn to seize the moments, seize the time that God has given us now to be who we're supposed to be, to say what we're supposed to say. 
as a church, can I, just, can I just remind you, God has given to us a great commission that is really an extension of this be fruitful and multiply language. The great commission is the carrying forward of this original mandate. We are to go to all nations and make disciples. Jacob here reminds us of the importance of that mission being fulfilled in and through the family of God, in and through the people of God, who this side of the cross is sitting right here in this room, at least in part. And that task can be, can be pursued, if you think about this, from a family framework, as we think about Jacob and his sons, I think it's really important to draw from this, this image of the family as being the primary place that we can begin to advance the mission of God. So, for example, uh, if you are married in here, one of the ways you can advance the Great Commission is by having an exemplary marriage that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Your marriage can be a source of communicating the gospel in displaying God's grace, God's love for his people, the way the people of God submit themselves to the headship of Christ. If God has given you children, let me encourage you, raise your children to know and follow the Lord to the best of your abilities. Get on your knees and pray for their hearts. Pray for their souls. Take time with them. Make more time for them. Make it quality time with them. Get into their hearts. Get into their lives. Open the word of God. Help them memorize the scriptures. Teach them how to pray. Show them what it looks like to follow Jesus. You gotta invest in your children. This is, this is in fulfillment of the Great Commission to go and make disciples. God has given you the opportunity to make little disciples who Lord willing will grow up one day to go out and make more disciples. And if you're a member here at this church, you're like, how can I advance the Great Commission in our context? Let me give you one uh, suggestion. Get involved in kids' ministry. It's not a plug. Like, Lord didn't come to me and say, we really need volunteers. Could you get up there and work it into the sermon? It's not it. If she's here, she's probably like, though, but preach it, Ian. Go, preach. I, I, but I'm not kidding. I, I think we, this is a missed opportunity for so many of us in this room that we've not considered. Do you understand the impact you can make in the lives of the kids down that hallway right there? Do you understand the significance of making spiritual deposits and investments in their lives, of being able to shape their young lives? If you're a man in here, you need to hear this. This isn't just for the women, okay? It's not just for the women to go down there and teach the kids the Bible. God may be wanting to use you to invest in those young lives because they're gonna grow up one day and God's gonna call them to go out into this world and make disciples and you can play a part in that. What a precious gift that is. Start with your family and then start with the families here and then see how God pushes you out of these walls into the world beyond. One more thing I wanna highlight here from this passage or from this chapter is that those who want to be blessed have a responsibility to receive the blessing. Now, I wanna draw this out of Jacob's sons and what Jacob is intending for his son. He's doing his part and what he's wanting them to understand is that they actually have a role to play here too. It's not all on him, right? You can lead a horse to water. And he's saying to his son, sons, especially the donkey, it's time to drink. 
The whole book of Genesis is about reversing the curse of sin. It's the whole book of Genesis. It's really about the whole Bible. The whole Bible is, is how, how do we get back to paradise lost, right? John Milton was onto something when he wrote that book. How do we get back to paradise lost? The answer is this. Someone has to come and crush the head of the serpent. Someone has to come and deal with the curse of sin. And that person has to also lead people back into the blessing of life. That said, uh, some of his son's blessings contain no word of blessing and in fact are curses. And again, I want you to understand what's taking place here. These are both rebukes and warnings. What we will see is that in most of these cases, these sons will not respond appropriately, especially the ones who are rebuked. Reuben, for example, his tribe is, is essentially all but going to disappear from the story of the people of God. Simeon and Levi, I mean, they're in so much sin. Like, don't even let them come into my presence. Scatter them among the land, the, the other tribes. You say, why is he saying this? Here's, this, is, this is Jacob calling his sons to repentance. This is Jacob looking at his sons in the eyes and saying, sons, you have never dealt with your sin. You have never, you have never responded the way you should have. You have never repented. You've never fallen on your face and mourned over your sin. You've never sought the forgiveness of the Lord. You're still walking in rebellion. And when you choose to do that, it's not going to go well for you. I'm calling you back to the blessings by telling you that you are in sin. You see how that works? And as the church, we need to understand that we actually are given by God a prophetic voice in the world. We are, in many ways, the way God is speaking to the world, it's through the church, through his word, through believers. And that means that as a church, we must be purposeful in our gatherings together you know, there are some believers who want to run out into the world and start rebuking the world really fast. Everything's about criticizing the world and going after the world and, and, and being angry at the world. But you know what Peter says, interestingly? Peter says, let judgment begin in the household of God. In other words, before you want to run around and try to rebuke everybody else for living in sin, you need to first deal with your own sin. And the family of God needs to be concerned about cleaning house in here. We need to be concerned about what it looks like to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord in here so that we can actually go and properly minister to the world out there. We need to understand what it looks like to get rid of sin in our lives and to become men and women of holiness, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to have visible evidences of walking with the Lord There is a responsibility as God's people to get our house in order so that we can be an effective blessing and witness to the world. And that will, like this passage, involve hard conversations sometimes. Getting after sin in our own lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters is what we do in the life of the church. 
because we love each other and we love the Lord and we want the holiness of God to be on display and the glory of God to shine forth from among us. And so we push each other towards holiness and godliness. And I want to ask you this question. In light of that, as a follower of Christ, if you are a member here in this church, are you saying what needs to be said, when it needs to be said, how it needs to be said, and perhaps more importantly, are you responding to what's being said when it's said to you? And by the way, this isn't just about correction, although the word of God is very clear. We come alongside one another to correct, to exhort, to reprove, and to rebuke. There is a place for that. Paul tells Timothy that that's actually one of the main purposes of the word of God. If we sit under the word of God frequently, here's what should be happening. Our souls should feel conviction sometimes, amen? Like it's okay, right? Can we all, can we just like agree when you walk into church, it's actually uh, the, the way the spirit works, the presence of God and the blessing of God in your life to feel the conviction of sin and then, and then listen, this gets better, and then to feel the encouragement and comfort of the Holy Spirit who says, listen, yes, you're a sinner. Yes, yes, you need to grow. But yes, God is sufficient. Yes, yes, God can meet you in that weakness and in that brokenness. Yes, God can take what has been so broken and ravaged by sin and God can repair it. He can rebuild it. He can make you into somebody new. He can make you more like Christ. Amen. Yeah, we clap for that. Praise the Lord. That's good news, right? I hope so. From a human standpoint, the future for each tribe was open for blessing if each tribe would trust in God and remain faithful to him. And it's really fascinating because the first, do you remember the, the, the second two sons, Simeon and Levi, the place where they exacted vengeance and committed their atrocious sin was, was what's known as Shechem. And this becomes a significant place in the Bible. In fact, uh, Moses is going to lead in Deuteronomy, the people of God who've come out of the wilderness, out of the Exodus in the wilderness, to Shechem, to this very place. And he's going to separate the people of God and have them face each other. And then what he's going to do is he's going to have them recite the, the law where it describes the blessings for obedience and the cursings for disobedience. This is the place where Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24, is going to bring the people of God. He's going to stand them in Shechem between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and he's going to have them understand there is blessings for following the Lord, and there are curses. If you want life, he's going to say, follow the Lord. If you want death, reject the Lord, follow the idols of this world, live for this world. That's death. But if you want life, follow the Lord. And then he's going to make that powerful statement, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I want to encourage you, listen, every one of us gets brought to this, this place, this valley, this Shechem, this, this place of decision in our lives, where God is saying to you, choose this day whom you're going to serve. For some of you in here right now, this, this moment is what God has brought you here for. God is looking at you, and he knows where you are. And he knows that you're, you're just, you're stuck in the middle and God is saying to you, listen, if you want to live today, choose this day whom you will serve. And he's saying, choose me, choose the Lord. Lastly, and this leads us into our time of communion, we are called to celebrate God's blessing for you. And uh, I... 
I simply want to read these passages and highlight for you what the word of God is conveying to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, but most importantly, to celebrate it. Judah and Joseph are highlighted here. Listen to what it says about, let's look at Joseph first quickly. It says, Joseph is a fruitful bow, verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. It sounds, by the way, a lot like Psalm 1. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. The word nourishing, bearing fruit. The archers bitterly attacked him. Think about his life being thrown into the pit, turned on by his brothers, shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, here it is, the stone or the rock of Israel. By the God of your Father, who will help you? By the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, with blessings of the deep that crouches beneath the earth, blessings of the breasts of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up from the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers." He is depicting the blessed man who walked faithfully with God. The God who knew, or the the man who knew that God as his shepherd and his rock, the almighty one. Jacob bestows on Joseph the, the greater blessings because he was the prince among his brothers. And I want you to remind you that all through this story of, of Joseph, we were being reminded that Joseph is pointing us towards someone who's going to look like him, a future ruler named Jesus. But while Joseph is a prince, we need to see that Judah is a king. In fact, look at what it says in verse 8, Judah Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. This is where the royal language of the lion of the tribe of Judah comes from. Notice verse 10. Again, kingly language here. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. You're like, what in the world is going on there? What's this language about tying a donkey up to a vine? Well, listen, if you know anything about owning a donkey, which I assume you don't, there's one thing you don't do. You don't tie a donkey up to a vine. You want to know why? He'll eat the fruit. All of it, 
And grapes in the ancient world were so precious and so valuable, it took a long time to cultivate good quality grapes. And so you wanna know what he's saying here? Through this king that's going to come, this lion of the tribe of Judah, there will be such prosperity and blessing. You can go right ahead and tie your donkey up and let him eat all the grapes he wants because there's gonna be so much grapes, you don't know what you're gonna do with them all. You have grapes coming out your ears. And wine in the ancient world and all through the Bible is symbolic of blessing upon blessing where the wine flows. You can be sure that God is providing. That's why we have these pictures of the dark eyes and the white teeth because health flows from prosperity. There is coming an age, listen, where the water will be indistinguishable from the wine. Or let me say it like this, where the wine will flow like water. That's what this king is going to do. And it's not a coincidence that when Jesus Christ begins his ministry, the very first miracle he does is at a wedding. And he walks into this wedding feast where they have run out of wine. And he says, go and get those those jugs and fill them with water. And when they come and pour out the water, they pour out Wine, not just wine, but the best wine. And what John is doing by the Spirit of God is saying, with the coming of Jesus Christ, here we have met the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who has come into the world, the one who will bring everlasting blessing. And through him, wine is going to flow like water to all who believe.